I'm Philippe Rose. This is a conversation among friends working in international affairs. We share stories about our life in the real world and beyond the noisy headlines. And we hope a few interesting insights come out. In this episode, I speak with Tom Morris. Tom is the first person I reached out to when I was considering pursuing the GMAP degree in international affairs at the Fletcher School because we'd worked for the same company. As a fellow energy professional, I valued his perspective on whether it made sense for me to pursue such a degree. Tom has worked most of his life in the energy industry, helping countries monetize their hydrocarbon resources, including Norway, Greenland, Senegal, Philippines, and he now works in a gas venture in Russia at a time of unprecedented upheaval that we'll touch on. We'll speak about his interest in international affairs, how his viewpoints have evolved, and his reflections on what matters in life the most. I'm excited to be reconnecting with Tom at this particularly messy time and hope that you'll enjoy our conversation too. So hi Tom, it's really wonderful to speak again. Uh, I'm really glad that we get to uh, to do this conversation um, with with you, based in in St. Petersburg right right now, uh, and 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 all the the uh, hectic of uh, of the last uh, couple of months. Uh, and so, uh, thanks a lot for making the time and and joining us at the Coalface. Philip, my pleasure, and thank you ever so much. I feel very privileged to be invited. <laughs> thanks, and um, maybe a, a, a good place to start is um, to uh, ask you to go back. In, uh, in time to your, your, your childhood and, and early life. And maybe I would love to hear a little bit, if you could paint a picture of how it was like uh, growing up. Where did you grow up and how life was, uh, how life was like? Yes, I was on my passport, which the authorities at the moment notice when I cross the border. I was born in London. And I always have to explain why I love and live in Scotland, because at about age one, I think, my parents moved. And they moved a lot because they were in the medical profession. And as their careers progressed, we moved to three or four different places quite quickly. But I was brought up in Dundee, um, went to school there uh, with a sister. Um, And my parents, I think, very kindly and very skillfully didn't move once we'd started our our schooling. And so my sense of that period in life, it was very stable, very enjoyable. Um, It was a city. It was a city which had had a very, very tough economic history uh, in the sort of 70s and 80s when I was growing up. So economically, a lot of the UK, but also particularly Dundee, was losing factories and losing jobs. So it was, it was a tough time for, for many of the people in Dundee. Um, but I had very, very happy memories. Yeah. Um, they would supplement the city life um, with uh, lovely holidays on the west of Scotland. So you'd have a, a city life, albeit a, a small city, and again, very happy memories of long road trips uh, and ferries across the islands, and very, very simple sort of, um, it was a crofting family uh, with a farm, and we would do the things you couldn't do in, in the town. So you'd, you'd feed the lambs, and you'd oh, wow. help with the fishing and all these things. So I have very, very happy memories of all of that. Right. So the 70s, 80s, that, that was the, the Thatcher, I guess, the Thatcher era with uh, privatization and closure of coal mines. and Yes, indeed. She came later, didn't she? She was late 70s after the three-day week and the winter right. discontent, etc. Yeah. So, and again, that's maybe relevant in the current circumstances that I 
certainly for the last couple of years have told family to keep a you know a hand winding telephone charger in the attic and maybe some batteries and some <laughs> uh, candles and things of that sort because as our energy systems become even more complex you know the likelihood of brownouts in, in Europe unfortunately has been increasing yeah. never more so than now unfortunately yeah. um, so yes I have memories in the 70s of sitting in my parents bedroom I must have been about three or four I think and they had a a color gas um, lamp and that was it that was providing heat and light and we sort of huddled around that during the period in the UK when electricity was being rationed yeah. uh, and, and circulated through so yes it was um, <laughs> strangely that's a positive memory for children that's quite fun I guess <laughs> yes, I know, adventure. I know. But, but for adults and for people who are trying to make an income and provide stability yeah. for the family, it was probably quite catastrophic. But for me, it was a camping memory. <laughs> yeah, I have a sense that this theme of energy uh, security and the historical aspects of that will come back a few times in our conversation. But uh, let's not go. Not get no, indeed. Process. I actually have really fond memories of um, of uh, exploring Scotland um, uh, around uh, when I was a student, together with my brother, actually. Uh, traveling from from uh, from east to west by train uh, through the highlands, and then oh, exploring smashing. Isle of Skye, Kyle of Lochalsh, having yeah. a very very late dinner in Kyle just as the fishermen came back late late evening or late day. The restaurants were open till 10 p.m. actually for the fishermen, and then enjoying my my first uh, um, Scottish dessert, the the Cranachan, um, oh, which super. I really love. <laughs> Oh, so no, you've, you've got a very good sense of things. And then the, I mean, that's one of the huge advantages of Scotland. So having lived in other countries like you have, is Scotland's very accessible. You've got beautiful beaches, you've got beautiful mountains, you've got beautiful valleys and glens, very nice mixture of, of contemporary, but also historical architecture, etc. And it's all relatively accessible. So yes, in that yeah. train trip that you've done, you know, within yeah. three, four hours, maybe you've crossed the country. Yeah. and had all of these experiences, <laughs> yeah, which you yeah, can't remember, do in, in, yeah. in the States or Australia or, or China or, or yeah, Russia. true. Yeah. I remember it was the, the autumn, so there was beautiful reddish colors and then these very hairy cows, and it was almost like going into a movie, through a movie set. It was amazing. <laughs> mm, so, uh, no, indeed. But then, then maybe let, let's um, uh, uh, ask you to, to speak a bit about your, your early career and what drew you to the, uh, to the energy, energy space and to your, your, your affinity with the Nordics as well. So career-wise, for various reasons, engineering was something I wanted to do. My parents and much of my family were in medicine. Uh, and in fact, none of my generation, so my sister, my cousins, actually bar one now who's changed, but initially none of us did medicine, whereas all of our uh, parents and uncles, etc., were in medicine. And I really wanted to do engineering. In Scotland, we'd had the oil industry offshore and friends, parents were in there doing good things. But with the oil price fluctuations, which is also a theme, I didn't want to study petroleum engineering and lock myself in. And so I chose mechanical engineering, mm. uh, which is a very wide uh, place to start, if you like. And from there, you could do other things. So I studied mechanical engineering, uh, which is very, very wide and could lead to all sorts of different careers. Um, and in fact, my choice was between Procter & Gamble in a diaper or nappy factory, <laughs> uh, factory in um, Manchester. Yeah. So I was lucky to get a job offer, actually. And that was, would have been a super company. And the other offer was Shell um, to go to The Hague mm. and to just uh, do some training and then potentially go other places in the world. 
and I was tempted by the international route. I hadn't mentioned earlier in my childhood, but my grandparents, I was very fortunate, three of my grandparents uh, were around when I was growing up. One, unfortunately, my, my grandfather had, had passed away, but they were all huge influences and they had an international perspective. They had, my grandmother had very Scottish roots, but had been married to a, a language teacher. Um, and on the other side, on my mother's side, they'd lived in Africa and lived mm. in, in Asia. And so I think the appeal of travel as yeah. well as engineering together was why I chose to yeah. join Shell in, when was it, uh, early 90s. Yeah. Oh, fascinating. I have to, I, I must uh, add a quick comment because I, I'm just struck by some of the similarities between your journey and, and mine. Um, although I didn't study engineering, I studied uh, business and economics. Um, I grew up in Geneva, but studied in the German part of Switzerland. And one of my uh, kind of uh, visits as a student to companies was to P&G. Uh, and I visited their 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 company their uh, office in Geneva and met uh, business professionals super super excited about their job. Uh, one of them was very proud. I think she managed to secure rights to put uh, Mickey Mouse, I think, on on diapers. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, that's when I realized that I didn't share that much passion for for her uh, sector and was much more drawn to Shell, also because of the stories of my own grandparents having lived and worked uh, internationally and and um, I also had this Tintin uh, cartoon book uh, one of the episodes is about the, the black gold and so I, I felt more dra mm -hmm. drawn to that global life so funny I have to mention it because it, it just triggers <laughs> a bit of a no, indeed. There. isn't that interesting but I, if I look at the skills I have now I mean there's all sorts of industry skills but actually manufacturing of you know consumer goods with plastic content and a medical uh, element to it. I mean, those skills are what the world actually needs in very great, yeah. great amounts. Is So the sort of you know, Procter & Gamble and other manufacturing companies now have to do that in a circular way and make sure things are yeah. uh, recycled, reused, and also do it in a very high standard. So yeah. we maybe made the wrong choice, Philip. You know, <laughs> Could be, yeah. actually. So, yeah. so the, the Nordic Connection came, so Shell, I won't spend too much time on that, but they run a very, very good, training program for new recruits because I came in with mechanical some had already studied petroleum and they sort of merge you into a group that can 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 work you know under supervision in, in various roles and typically it was Dutch British that was about the two larger groups and then a lot of other uh, international staff from Brunei Malaysia Gabon Nigeria Oman mm -hmm. it was just fantastic particularly for me who'd grown up not necessarily having traveled all that much at that stage in my life. And then they typically sent the British um, graduates would pretty much go to the north of the Netherlands. And the Dutch graduates would go to Aberdeen. Yeah. And for reasons which I will never understand, I went to Norway <laughs> by myself. And that was just the way, it, so it wasn't my choice. Um, and I'm so pleased that that happened. Now it made it harder because you then move effectively without friends or without a group and you go into a, an organization there which wasn't used to taking a training. Yeah, yeah. But at that time, Norway was really ramping up, particularly in these large offshore projects, uh, which we'll come back to. But one in particular, Troll, is still producing and is a very reliable gas supplier to, to Europe. Yeah. And I was eventually grew into roles which gave me skills and exposures which yeah. you wouldn't have normally had at that stage. And maybe you should touch on Troll because it's not, it sounds, what is it, like a, a project, but it's it's not just a project, it's 
it's a, it's it's one of the industry's most complex, largest, most impressive thing ever done. Um, so it's, it's 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 worth just stopping on it for a second. <laughs> Let me come at it from the political point of view first, and then we'll do it from the engineering point of view. Um, there's a letter from Reagan to I think the Prime Minister of Norway, saying this project has to go ahead, and this was in the mid '80s, I guess, because they wanted to have a alternative supply of gas to Europe. Yeah. And Troll is, if not the biggest, it's certainly the biggest offshore, it's probably the biggest gas field uh, in Europe after the one in Kroningen in the north of the Netherlands. So immense reserves, you know, 50, 70 years of production. And I think at that time, it was about one third of Europe's energy demand or gas demand, yeah. Yeah. approximately. But it was also in relatively deep water in those days and technically was an immense challenge because you had to come out from the shore through tunnels. And But what the Norwegians did very, very skillfully, even in, 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 at that time, was the power for that isn't from burning the gas. The power comes from hydroelectric electricity wow. from land and an electrical cable was run offshore to the platform. So even in the, what was this, early 90s, it was already, if you like, a, a, a visionary project as well as a critical infrastructure project. Yeah, yeah. So, yes, it had three or four major components in itself. Um, some of the people involved were hugely inspiring, particularly Mike Steer, who was the project director, who statistically would always talk about in a project of this scale, statistically, I was told I would have, whatever it was, six fatalities. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then he would counter that and said but but i'm not yeah and then he would give his reasons why and he would give his town hall speech about hsc but he did it so passionately and he did it so strongly and so convincingly and from memory i think there wasn't a fatality yeah during yeah. the construction of troll yeah. despite the mega scale of it yeah. and for those who aren't in, in in our industry i guess maybe i should touch on that is uh, for those who don't work in manufacturing or construction but you know, whilst we nowadays can do so much by computer and you know data and drawings and, and, and you know technology, a lot of what we do requires men and women yeah. to be very close to either very heavy yeah. or very high drops or very hot yeah. or high high yeah. pressure things. You still have a human equipment interface. Yeah. And in a project of that scale, again I forget the numbers, but there would have been thirty thousand people working yeah. on that at any one time and then the, the point about statistics again for people less familiar with that is like you're talking about millions and millions of man hours so you have a very small risk of an incident with thirty thousand people spending at millions of hours so that's why mm -hmm. you come up with this number of six so to reduce that you're talking about making sure that all individuals are abiding by by um, a set of rules and behaviors that reduce this tiny risk uh, even further uh, to try to get that to actual effective zero, yeah. No, exactly, so I was hugely privileged to be there and to work with such skillful managers. But I guess what was also, I mean, I was an engineer by that stage. I'd done several years of traditional engineering, shall we say, offshore Norway. And then I was put in this role by, and this shows the internationalization of it, I guess, but my boss in those days was a Nigerian. Mm -hmm. uh, Hubert Nuklu, um, who said, Tom, you're, you, I was happy. I was offshore. I was on a drilling rig. I was learning a lot. I was being paid a bit extra for being offshore. Yeah. I had lots of time off. We'll come back to that. But my first trip to Russia was during my time off while drilling wow. uh, on, on, on a rig in Norway. 
And Hubert said, no, I have a job for you. You're going to go back to the office. I don't want to go. I, I, <laughs> no, I, I'm happy. I'm learning. No, no, you must go back. And the office job I was given was in a group of, it was called Internal and External Interface Department Patrol. All right. And I was working, it was a shell project, which was handed over to those days, Statoil. And my boss was from ConocoPhillips, and his boss was from Statoil, and his boss was from Shell. And we were this joint venture. We were a project. It didn't matter that you were Shell or Statoil or a second E from the government or whatever. We were there to do this project safely and skillfully. But by being in the interface department, I was dealing with requests from government, requests from trade unions, also the technical interfaces between these various parts of the project. So my exposure and my learning curve was just spectacular. Yeah, I've, I've spent almost 10 years, just short of 10 years in joint ventures my, myself. And, and that was for sure the, the highlight of my career from the diversity of people, perspectives, parties, the way value is perceived in different ways. That was really, really enriching. Yeah. Mm. And joint ventures, That's I have two jobs at the moment. I'm the general manager of, of, of our activities in Russia, but I'm also head of our a new, a new group called Head of Joint Venture Excellence, mm, yeah. um, which is a challenging role at the moment when we're working remotely, etc. But the intent is indeed to help other people really enjoy and flourish in an environment where, as you said, you're, you're having to understand different drivers, different behaviors, different priorities, but still create a product or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And that's going to be so critical as we move into a circular economy or we move into different value chains as an industry, we're not going to do that by ourselves. Mm. We're going to have to do that with a sense of partnership or joint ventures, to use a similar word. And then a lot of the GMAP skill sets are this idea about aligning interests politically, socially, economically, organizationally, um, contracting-wise, yeah. et cetera. All of that has to fall into place yeah. if we're going to have these innovative partnerships that are going to help solve some of the future problems. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it sounds easy to do, but it's actually extraordinarily difficult, um, especially if you come from the mindset of a corporate sector. Um, you have a certain view about value means, uh, I don't know, um, uh, kind of the, the dividends that your venture creates, but then value for um, someone else could be about um, career progression and development and securing jobs. Yes. Or, or for, for government regulators, it could be cr creating enough knowledge that they can, they can create a local, local capabilities um, or, or uh, making sure that there's a pathway to to, to develop a f further kind of value-added industries. So it's, it's what we take for granted as what is value um, it can mean totally different things, and it's it's hard yeah. to see that. Uh, yeah. Yes. No. You're absolutely right. I mean, the, I'm not from the government or the political sector, but I think also this sense of value over time. So if we go back to Troll, I worked on it in the in the early '90s. My predecessors had found it. You know, underground, under the sea in the late 70s, early 80s. And it's still producing, and it still will. So that's yeah. what, that's 50 years till now and still going. So these are decades yeah. projects. And so it's value over time as well as value now or value within the media cycle or value within the political cycle yeah. of, of, of a politician's career. Yeah, and, and it's something that uh, not everyone appreciates um, from, from, from people who are not familiar with the energy industry is the impact that country that then projects like that can have on, on uh, at a country level in terms of its its wealth, its development. Um, as a troll, definitely is intimately associated with, with Norway 
as it exists today as a country that that's kind of hard to really fathom mm, no indeed but also i think this is where norway's done well possibly better than scotland and the uk is they 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 if you look at these hub projects which they've done in a staggered or a progressive way up the coast of norway and then around them that allows the smaller fields which are less economic to be produced through those industrial hubs mm, yeah the british approach was a bit more scattered which was um and so some of the hub projects in the north sea on the on the british side aren't going to be there long enough to allow the smaller mm, things around yeah. it to be produced so norway approached it strategically as well as economically and as i said earlier environmentally as well yeah that that's uh, interesting maybe i could suggest to to move along into um the direction that your career took after that in terms of um, um your, your international uh, outlook um working li- literally all over the world and i'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that uh, in terms of uh, country entries and, and your experience working in in countries that um uh, were, were less further along on the on the development curve as well so i realized in norway but also my next job in the netherlands so so shell had a progression that you you had to move so often and do certain roles at a certain stage that i could do the engineering i was good at it and i the, the sort of problem solving and the, the teamwork needed was was very very appealing but i was growing more interested in why and where we were doing these projects yeah. as opposed to to doing them and actually value wise you can create or damage value much more early if you if you go into the wrong country or with the wrong uh, contract or at the wrong time or you do the wrong project uh, you can actually you know destroy a company uh, or, or do a lot of harm and so i started after norway i was moved to the netherlands at that stage i was able to persuade a, a beautiful norwegian lady to join me and um, <laughs> we're still very happily married now which is wonderful um and she worked in amsterdam and i worked offshore oh, she on was the also offshore in shell and no 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 she she gave up what she was doing in norway and came to join right. me on a promise oh well um she had a legal background right um so no she she took a punt and um uh, I'm, I'm thrilled <laughs> with <laughs> i'm thrilled with that it's worked um so no so i then this was the period of the yugoslav yeah. wars and it was the period of the rwandan atrocities um and i realized that my education and my experiences so far this was also post the fall of the berlin wall when the news was all about this is wonderful you know that we've sorted out the world's problems we're all going to be friends it's all going to be peaceful we don't need to fight anymore why on earth in the early 90s were these conflicts and these nasty you know disgusting things happening in the world and so i started a night school in international relations hmm. uh, at Webster University. Now that probably isn't going to help solve any of those world's problems, but it would give me a tool a kit and a vocabulary and possibly a deeper understanding of why what I was seeing on the news didn't match what everyone said should be happening in the 90s once the Cold War had gone. It's funny. That, so it's, it's a, out of a sense of kind of your worldview didn't match what was happening and it, it's, this is causes some kind of a cognitive tension is, is that a bit how, how you felt at the yes, time, if you yes that's a good wording or a sort of i, I was incomplete or i mean yeah. I, I had i was very very good by then at gas elements of of gas field engineering so i don't know metallurgy elastomers uh, high pressures uh, 
all the things we talked about, marine engineering, that's wonderful skill set, but the news was just catastrophic yeah. um, and didn't seem to be getting any better. Um, and I was very, very fortunate. Some of the lecturers there, because it was in Leiden, just up from um, The Hague, uh, one of the lecturers was the Albanian ambassador, for example. And mm. so the quality of lecturers at, at you know, what was effectively just a night school in, 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 in political affairs was just spectacular. And then Shell posted me to the Philippines. <laughs> and so I had to stop my night school. But I think the Philippines matched my international interest and it matched my, um, uh, my curiosity, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Um, so I went looking for an international relations program that I could do online. Mm. And it's maybe hard to remember that the internet wasn't the thing it is now. Yeah, in two thousand, early 2000s, There weren't for sure, yeah. many schools doing this by then. And I stumbled across Fletcher and unfortunately not realizing what a privileged and what a high uh, caliber school it was. And, yeah. and I applied and I was accepted. And so I was able to continue that. Um, so, the, so the move to the Philippines was partly I volunteered, but partly Shell needed people there. Yeah. Um, but it was in parallel with my increasing desire to study more about international affairs. And and so, how how did that affect the way you were um, looking at your 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 position or your activity in the Philippines? Suddenly combining um, the kind of the the, the the day-to-day -day of, of managing energy projects with a, somehow new tools, new frameworks to kind of make sense of the, 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 the political dimension animating a lot of our industry? That's a good question. And, and actually what I'm going to answer is maybe useful for others who are earlier in their career or yourself as you're about to embark on, on, on more studies as well. Is it was actually quite a tension because I was labeled in my organization as an engineer. Mm, yeah, yeah, and, and the engineers should, yeah, yeah. should, should do the engineering, yeah. you know, and the government affairs will do the government affairs, and the engineers will do the engineers, or the finance will do the finance, yeah. etc. And for me, and it still is for me, those labels are useful because you know who's got which skill set. But and it was your previous podcast uh, last week uh, was talking about the T profile, this idea that you need depth and skills in one specialty, but mm. you also need bread and the ability to relate to and work with others and so i think frankly i think my boss didn't quite understand why i was doing this <laughs> yeah. uh, but tolerated it and it created attention um and i guess without jumping too far ahead that's why i ended up in in russia after that because the choices that shell had for me then were we would move to explain to others again it's maybe the same in many international companies you would do three or four years in each place typically mm. Yeah. And it was normal to move like that. It wasn't that I was a sort of itinerant. Yeah. And I remember sitting with a lovely colleague, I won't mention his name here, and I said, I've got the choice. I can go to Stavanger, Aberdeen, Houston, back to The Hague, or Moscow. And he said, Tom, why are we even having this discussion? We've just <laughs> spent you know, half last year's bonus or whatever it is on, on, on studying international relations. You're, you're good at it. You're interested in it. You're going to Moscow. And, and so I did. Um, but so, so the organization I was in, and they allowed me to continue. And that was beautiful. So the Philippines project was already sanctioned. It needed engineering. Mm. It needed that built safely you know, to a certain standard. The Russian projects were, at, some of them were at that stage, but a lot were much earlier. They were at a stage where the politics, the economics, 
the social elements, the permitting were all still in flux. Yeah. And then that skill set and that sort of curiosity and the non-engineering elements is much more welcome or much more needed. Yes, this, this is really interesting because a lot of what you said just also triggered the uh, reflection on, on, on my... So, so you, you, you did the GMAP program on 2000... Was it two, three? I think I started in two and left in three. And so I, and I did it almost exactly 10 years later, 2013. And, and the, the experience that I had considering the program, so I'd always had an interest in international affairs. Um, but for me, it was more like, uh, I mean, oil and gas and, and geopolitics sounds exciting, uh, but I didn't know anything about it. And it's only kind of five, seven years into my career um, working. So, so I, I had international postings in, in Southeast Asia and then an opportunity to move to the, the Gulf. Um, and, and that's when I started realizing that my mental model of, of the role of business uh, w was severely under strain uh, when I looked at the way, f first of all, the, the, the outsized importance of the energy sector on domestic considerations, but then the, the role that politics, especially international affairs, started playing. And I felt I had no mental model, no framework to deal with that. And so as I moved to Saudi Arabia in, uh, what was it, 2011, that's when I, I started looking at, uh, at GMAP and eventually uh, applied. And th this was the period when the Arab Spring started falling apart. And they were, they were very uh, kind of uh, ruthless uh, crackdowns on, on demonstrations in Bahrain. Um, and, and even the, the kind of uh, the burgeoning of, a, of an uprising in, in the, in the um, in the eastern side of Saudi Arabia was also quite heavily repressed. Um, and um, th there was also quite a bit of discussion when I started GMAP about the role of uh, th this concept of responsibility to protect. Um, so interventionism um, to deal with um, domestic issues of, of um, when, a, when, a, when a government is unable to protect its people. And just and um, as I went into GMAP, um, the we had a few lectures around security. And I remember at the time, those were the least pos, uh, um, popular themes because the, the belief was that this is outdated, realist stuff. Mm -hmm. And we live in a kind of a rules-based rules, rules -based order now. But literally, soon after I started the program, um, we had a number of uh, incidents that happened, like the Crimean um, um, uh, uh, invasion by, by, by Russia. Um, that, that suddenly uh, kind of flipped things around where, where great power politics and the role of, of uh, the lack of a global policeman and these basic concepts in international affairs suddenly started coming back to the, the fore. Um, so it raised a lot of questions for me, like what are some of my fir firmly held beliefs and what are they mm -hmm. obscuring me from? Or what am I not seeing as a, as a result? So I thought it was interesting to hear you and your interest in international affairs triggered by similar things a decade earlier in the context of Rwanda and RTP. And then one, one, one conflict I think you, you didn't touch on, which is, is also, of course, the, the first US invasion into Iraq. So I'd love to maybe hear a bit more on that as well from you. There's, there's a lot there. It's a good question. And it's very nice to talk about it this way. Because I think if I, if I start to I think you've, you've raised the fact that we need to understand, we need to be curious, we need to read and, and, and learn from each other because history will repeat itself, or at least the world is a lot more complicated when you think you're on top of things or it's all going smoothly, it's likely to change. And I think you see that through the decades that we've discussed. Um, 
The Iraq one is interesting because when I was doing GMAT, one if not two of our students were called up to the yeah. second Iraq war. And that made it very tangible. Because yeah. I hadn't really had any exposure to the military at all. I was a private sector engineer. And to be, that was the beauty of GMAP, is that you're in there with diplomats and NGO workers and um, you know, entrepreneurs, but also military, often American military. And it made it very real. Um, and I remember the sort of, indeed, the simplicity, actually, then, of the security lectures, which is, this is going to be fine. We're going to go in there. We're going to be welcomed. And it's going to be quick. <laughs> And you yeah. think, oh. um, which wasn't the case when, when, for example, the Americans liberated the Philippines um, after the Second World War. But do you recall your view at the time? Like, were you were you kind of in this the same mood of inter interventionism to free people is the right thing to do, or were you already kind of seeing your perspective sh shift at the time? No, I was skeptical. And I remain skeptical, which is a strength, I guess. It's the engineering instinct. So, no, I was very skeptical. Um, and so probably alone in that skepticism at the time. Yes, I don't know if I was right. Well, I, I guess to be – so I was, if you like, against both – well, certainly the, second, the first right will no, but the second one, yes. But I was for the intervention in Afghanistan. Yeah. But on the other hand, which I realize is one of my – strengths and weaknesses i guess as an engineer and as a businessman now is that i am slightly risk averse mm. <laughs> and actually the world needs people who look at all of the risk and still push ahead regardless mm. and that's not me i'm not the person who'll say let's go to the top of the hill i'm much more the person who's here okay how are we going to get there safely on time and still have time for a picnic at the top yeah <laughs> and so it's a simplicity to something which is important as your question but you know even if i was right or wrong about whether you should intervene in, in conflict in Iraq, you ultimately need people who are able to make a decision with very incomplete information, with the support of their electorate, um, and to do what they think is right, despite the risk or despite the advice from, from, from yeah. the people around them. And that's the dilemma. That That's a huge dilemma of these uh, people who volunteer to be in these leadership positions in our society. So that's not me. I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm able to deliver a project or I'm able to advise on, on the risk. And so I guess my instincts when you ask what my opinion would be, no, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't feel right to me. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, yeah. This is their country. They're going to defend that. They, they, you know, why, why would a foreign force be welcome? Um, yeah. Maybe uh, if, if we go back to your, your first experience going into um, Russia, I'm really keen to hear your your impressions at the time, and because um, you mentioned you 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 traveled to Russia before, um, and this was your your first kind of experience there as a professional. Yes, indeed. So I had no. I guess my grandfather had been to Russia, and he'd show me photographs from 1973. Um, and as an aside, the first hotel I arrived in with Shah was the same hotel he stayed in. Oh, okay. Um, but that's, that's an aside. So I was working on the drilling rigs offshore Norway, learning a lot. And the rotor there was that you would do so much time on the rig and so much time off. And I had six weeks off. And so I backpacked up the coast of Norway, down through Sweden, into Finland, into Russia. And I was going to go on to Moscow. This was in 1993, uh, the fall of 1993. Uh, and I couldn't. The, 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 there was too much turbulence in Moscow at that time. So I went from St. Petersburg back down through the Baltic states. 
And I had a wonderful, wonderful trip. And I've got memories of walking around in St. Petersburg, going to theatres, talking to people, going to markets, which were def- desperately sad you know, to see an old lady selling a spoon yeah. or, 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 or something that she'd crocheted or whatever, or a coat hanger. You know, it was a desperately difficult time economically and politically in Russia. But people were genuine and warm and engaging and it was important to come then. So I guess it was so important for me at still a very young age to realize that what I'd seen or heard at home in the press about another country wasn't necessarily accurate Mm -hmm. and in fact was wrong. Mm -hmm. And I was so lucky to experience that at that time at an age which could still be influential for me. Yeah. Can you expand on it slightly? Like what what had you heard and what was different? No, it's probably because I was a child it would be wrong to generalize, I guess. But I guess no, it was the it was the salt treaties and the missiles and the nuclear Armageddon and the the school trips down to the um, the escape shelters and all the rest of it. No, the, the, the 80s, as a child, you didn't really understand it, but you had the sense that there was a something nasty hanging over us. Mm. Um, and I think then also our grandparents particularly had had experiences of a world war. Yeah. And would talk, well, they wouldn't talk about it. That was the challenge, wasn't it? So they'd sort of hint at it. And I think... To then realize that, yes, we're going to change, but also to realize that intensity of that change. So as I said, the, the, the people in the market who's, you know, if, you're, if your job is gone and your, your bank savings have, have evaporated and the streets are unsafe, etc., that that social transition or that political transition that, that we sort of read about in books uh, yeah. as international affairs sort of uh, students is, is, is not like that. Yeah. Um, and so I think it was probably that, but I think it was that, it was that sense of warmth and that sense of, and you get that now as well. I think we must be careful never to generalize, but this sense that Russia's a, a cold and unfriendly place is absolute nonsense mm. once you're here. Yeah. And it's easy to say, and people repeat it. And so it's ultimately, I think, back to people, people all around the world. Yeah. And you've done this. You've been to all sorts of places that I haven't, many more. But people want, you know, love, food, Shelter, yeah, um, not maybe not necessarily in that order, but that that's a sort of universal yeah. element. And then above that, you've got these political systems and structures and economic systems and yeah. corporations and governments that have been created to to sort of systemize things and make it better. And, and so, no, so I was thank you for your for asking that question because you were asking about Russia. So that first trip meant. That when I had the opportunity to work in Russia, I jumped at it. Yeah, yeah. And for various reasons, there were some practical things which I'd had a lot of experience in gas developments, which are very specialist, very important, but very different to oil developments. I'd done a lot offshore, nothing onshore. And so I was offered the chance to work in a, a new project in Russia. And it was also a joint venture. All the things that we'd talked about earlier. It was with an entrepreneurial partner. It was still sizable, but it was 
It had different environmental challenges, et cetera, et cetera. And so I joined, I think, as staff member six of this company that grew to 800 um, and had some wonderful bosses again who allowed me but also coached me in to do all sorts of things, mm -hmm. uh, several of which I was particularly proud of. So in that Russian context, though, you were recruiting young Russian staff. You were working in a Russian technical regulatory system, yeah. but trying to adjust for your international standards and, and, and practices, etc. So that dilemma of how do you bridge the two? How do you yeah. work as a European company in a, a post-Soviet technical regulatory environment with people who've got different perspectives, but also different educations, etc.? So yes, in that context, then, the, the skills that we talked about with GMAP about understanding the framework and the strategic environment you're in were absolutely critical. Yeah. Um, and maybe I want to also, I feel compelled to, to add a bit of my, my own background because it it's, it's echoes a lot part, part of your early life as well, which is when I was a student, for some reason, and I can't quite recall why, um, I always had a fascination for for russia um and it may have been that that maybe dates me but i remember my, my parents buying a a um a cd-rom player when i was a kid um and one of the very first cds we had bought was the cds of the um the red army choir oh, and one of the songs of course on that uh disc was the um, Soviet Union's uh, anthem, which mm -hmm. is one of the most kind of um, uh, powerful pieces of music that I had heard in my, my life. And it, it made me fascinated with Russia. It made me want to study the language and visit. And as a student, I, I went to St. Petersburg, and it must have been in 2001 or so, and I spent uh, some weeks um, living in a with, with a, um, a family and then oh, going to, to school uh, to language school and this was a very modest family living in a in a soviet style apartment mm -hmm. um, there was a, a grandmother and a young couple and a six-year-old boy called Kolye um, and I spoke almost no not a single word so I couldn't even say who I was but I had to get used to, and they spoke almost no English, and so I had to get used to living, um, um, li li living with with them. Um, Fantastic. And I remember they were receiving ten US dollars a day for every night I spent there, which was a lot of money um, for them. Mm -hmm. And I recall um, exactly as you said this extraordinarily extraordinary warmth, e even in a context of very few means, material means. And I remember incredible conversations, such as when I finally got a few words of Russian after a few days, uh, and with there a couple of words of English, um, they would they would ask me like how often I I went to the theater and to opera, and mm -hmm. uh, I was quite proud to say that I, I I tried to go once a year, and and they were absolutely shocked by how uh, uncultured I was, uh, because for them opera was a weekly affair. Uh, and even their six-year-old Collier was was an actor in his school's um, troupe, um, and so I went to I went to visit a, a theatre oh, piece that he did. But there were also very painful moments when um, I, I learned how to take the the metro to go to the school, 
And on my way to the metro station, I would pass quite a lot of beggars. And mm -hmm. all the beggars were covered in bruises and, and, and blood. And so I, I asked, um, I think I asked the teacher actually, why is it that all the beggars look like they've been in a fight? And then the answer I got was that people don't respect beggars because everyone has nothing. And so, and people deal with having nothing. And if you're a beggar, it means you've given up on trying to deal with having nothing and therefore you deserve to be kicked. And that I thought was hard <laughs> to mm. understand from you know, my, my background as a middle-class uh, Swiss <laughs> who'd gone to university, if you like. So there was this mm. unbelievable contrast of um, uh, welcoming and, and beauty fa beautiful family life with extraordinarily harshness um and i think i think it, it, may, it may it may be a bit of a uh, something that can be well still exists to some degree um, today and i have fond memories of things like very quirky habits um where, where religious life was almost non-existent at the time mm -hmm. but uh, there were a lot of superstitions and i remember um the grandmother of the family uh, having this strong belief in dr ivanov and there was this picture of this kind of mystic on the in the living room uh, kind of bearded guy as you would imagine and mm -hmm. a mystic from from uh, from the east and then dr ivanov said that it's important to be connected to the earth um and so the i remember this this grandmother i think it was every morning around 6 a.m would go in her uh, bathing suit in the it was november so you can imagine how mm -hmm. cold it was with a bucket of water and would stand barefoot uh, in the mud outside the apartment block and pour this bucket of water uh, across uh, on, on her on her head and come back home uh, as the way to connect with um, um, earth so it was it was quite quite a, she offered me to join her actually but it, it was quite quite an interesting kind of mind opener and introduction to russia <laughs> thank you for sharing that how interesting no it's super and i, I admire you for that because i also, my backpacking days, if you like, are gone, and so I probably would stay in a hotel and, <laughs> and observe the countries that I'm in. But you've actually experienced them, which is really important. And there were there were touches of uh, Russian humor. I remember because I, I mean I didn't know Russian humor, but I, I got to learn learn what it meant a bit. Which was the the first uh, one of the first nights I, I asked the um, the only man in the in the house, um, um, like what time he had dinner like what time does he eat at night and he looked at me with his stern face and he said uh i'm a man i eat when i'm hungry <laughs> and then with a little <laughs> smile uh, it just meant it was a joke but it, it, uh, to me that was okay that, that's that's a russian joke <laughs> <laughs> no good for you thank you for sharing that and it's um we haven't necessarily simplified but we've kind of made it quite personable, the problems of the world, if you like, and the political arena that we're in. Um, but I think it's important somehow that I think about my, my nieces, for example, but also other young people, is how do we create the opportunities for them yeah. that you've had and I've had and others had, that as we go into a world where either with COVID you couldn't fly, you couldn't leave home at some yeah. stages, and you rely on your internet or your iPad for your... Um, for your news, how can you create a world where people have the exposure and experience and yeah. the opportunity to do what you've just described? And I think what maybe one place we could continue this conversation uh, towards is 
talk about this kind of discrepancy between the contacts that we both have enjoyed with people and their daily reality and the aspiration that we've had to bring opportunities to them and then um, trying to figure out how our sector can play a positive role in that sense in places where the institutional fabric may be less developed, where um, governance is a question. Um, and we can talk about what we, what we mean by that. And I, I know you've worked in, in, in Africa as well. Um, I had um, five years in Iraq, which to me mirror a lot. Um, this discussion we just had about Russia, where in Iraq I, I, I worked um, next and together with um, locals who had suffered from decades of war and suffered in kind of the, the physical sense, but also in terms of um, many years of education gone, um, and were, were talking to me about their daily challenges, whether it was um, ha having access to medical care, being able to run a, a business on the side without having too many shakedowns, or people in position of government who in order to maintain their position, had to, to basically pay um, for the right to occupy a particular position, and then were, of course, expected to extract uh, bribes in, in, in order to be able to do that payment. And this is, we're not talking about people who were trying to get rich out of that, but simply who were mm -hmm. in, um, in systems that uh, expected officials um, to, to fund their own jobs, in a way. So, and I often had, and this is also something that I was trying to explore during my GMAP studies, is how can I find out and demonstrate that the economic rent, for example, from my industry as a whole is actually benefit, benefiting colleagues or their relatives who are maybe outside of the sector? And I realized that I was the only one asking that question within my company, um, and and it was definitely not a welcome question, um, but it was definitely something that I was lucky that I was part of a, a community of professionals doing economics where we allowed to ask such questions. Um, I was just curious, how have you approached that kind of dilemma of how do we know that what we're doing is actually good for that family or the people that we meet or the colleagues that, are, that, are, that we're training? What a good question. Let me try and link a few things here. Let me link my move to a company after Shell and also the responsibility I had for some activities in Senegal. So in the Shell system, as I described, a very large company, very capable, and I, I was very privileged to be there. You had departments and there was always others. So, so the dealings with the government or the dealings with the commercial contracts was done by another department, uh, often. But I moved from Russia and shell to a scottish company it was right it felt the right time to be home again who took a risk with me and allowed me to be their commercial manager and eventually their commercial director although i was an engineer who'd done some economics and had a degree in political affairs but i hadn't been a commercial manager and they taught me they took me they they they, they i carried the bags i took the minutes and we went to government meetings in Nepal, Bangladesh, India, Albania, China, Greenland, all of them. And I watched and learned from some very, very skillful and very ethical and very admirable managers how they dealt with 
negotiating contracts between an energy company and a government. The company was called Cairn, Cairn Energy, it's now called Capricorn, and they were a member of the EITI, so the Mm, Extractive Industry Transparency Initiative, where you would declare what you'd paid and the governments would declare what they received. And that's a a start, is is what is the contract? Now, the contracts often have to be commercial, not always, so Norway publicizes, uh, and the different systems, I guess, in different countries, which we don't need to go into. But they are commercial, you're competing with other oil companies or other energy companies, so there is a commercial confidentiality, but the fundamentals are often public. But this company, I guess I learned a lot there that you think necessarily that a big company is better. But no, and I, I like this, and it's important, again, for people who are choosing, I think, their careers or choices. They're in a small company, and we explain this a lot, that we only have one project. So our entire company is focused, Mr. Minister or Mrs. Minister, on your project. And our company is full of people like Tom or Philip who've come from bigger companies. So we've got all the skills that the big company has, but we're focused on what you need. And so I think part of it would be that, is that if you are really understanding or really focusing on one country, one project, you have more ability to to to, to learn it or to appreciate it and to understand the sensitivities that you referred to about that uh, graph structure that you referred to. And so by the time that we were running a project in Senegal, that was, at that stage, the project that the company was doing. Yeah. And that was the one that all of the resources that our smaller company could do. Um, and so the opportunity that I had to leave that country entry and to build the rapport at all levels for my company with the Senegalese authorities, and that is important. You've picked up on this in Iraq. Is a, a, the, the projects that we do... I mean, we required helicopters. Now, Senegal didn't have many, and they were worried that we were going to fly those over the presidential palace. You know, some basic fundamental, you're doing things in a security arena. We need to use explosives. So you're dealing with the military because you're bringing explosives for what you're doing offshore. We're dealing with very, very uh, often inflammable chemicals, etc. And so you touch all of the government agencies when you do a, an activity as you've done before. So what we did there was we did a stakeholder mapping, all the things you'd expect to do. We tried to understand the formal but also the informal um, uh, relationships behind the scenes. And then put in place uh, an anti-bribery and corruption process, which is almost standard now, but wasn't 15, Mm, 20 years ago, uh, which had a whole series of um, checks and balances within it. fundamentally and simply it was about making sure that we were understanding what the Senegalese government needed which was investment and jobs and a very high environmental standard because this was after Macondo where there'd been an oil spill in an equivalent um, depth of water and delivering on what they needed in a transparent and a open way and I'm absolutely convinced and very, very proud that we were able to move quickly. We were able to put equipment in the port and the airport. We were able to import uh, the rig, etc., uh, etc., et in a completely transparent and ethical way, to use that word, because we had understood what they needed and we were delivering on our promises. Now, that may sound simplistic, um, but I think it's, as I say, if you focus on that, you build the understanding, you build the rapport, and you 
work transparently, then I think you can avoid a lot of the things that, that you refer yeah. to. Yeah. And I think the problem comes in large organizations. I mean, Shell was very, very good at a lot of this, but I suspect that if you're in a large military organization or a large international organization where you're in an office and you've got you know cascades of teams and all the rest of it, your ability to focus on that stakeholder or that project or that contract is, 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 not, is not there. And that's what you need to do. You need to look at every contract, every stakeholder, every activity to avoid the pitfalls that you referred to. Yeah. Um, and so in Senegal, we within a year, we'd done the country entry. We'd arranged a funding partner, an American partner. We had extended our production sharing contract with the government. We had trained Senegal finance and, and environmental staff to work with us. We'd increased the safety performance in the port in a staggering way with, with very, very good supervisors. Um, I spent a day in the port. I mean, I was the, you know, the, the, the man in the suit, I guess. I wasn't the man in a hard hat and a, and a coverall. And I was very conscious that I didn't want to be yeah, you know, the, the guy from head office who just turned up and made people work. So I spent a day in the sun at the port in a coverall, watching, not, not doing anything, as the guys lifted pipes off a ship onto the deck and off the deck onto a truck and all the yeah. rest of it. Because in, a, in, a, in the projects that we're doing, this is hundreds and hundreds of very large, very heavy pieces of pipe. And I did a six-hour shift, and I was exhausted, and all I was doing was watching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and we expect these people in these climates and these environments to do that safely, repeatedly, with incredible focus. So it gave me a huge respect for the stevedores in the port of, 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 of Dakar. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know if that answers your question, but I, I think it's yeah. about focus and understanding. Yeah. And to me, it also raises a, a, a related question, which is, okay, even if you've done everything right, transparently, you've made sure that everything is audited, uh, you've worked very well with the uh, the institutions, the relevant institutions, no matter how um, how complex it may be, but then your contract itself provides a, a, a significant financial rent mm -hmm. to, um, let's say, a ministry or a set of ministries that aren't delivering public goods. Um, and so, to me, that's where normally the responsibility of the of the um, of the energy company um, ends because in our industries we don't see that it's our job to tell a host government what it should do with its own money but what, what scholars would would say or, or even members of the iti would say is that actually there is a role that the industry as a whole is playing in maybe perpetuating or empowering dysfunctional institutions um, to stay uh, unrepresentative or to fund themselves without the need for popular support um, and that they, in a way we are, as an industry in some countries, you could argue that our existence is actually preventing development by disconnecting the embryonic state from a need to be accountable through the through the large resources that are provided directly and so some scholars uh, and this is a topic that i approached in my my gmap thesis 
advocate that through mechanisms like the ITI transparency approach, you would you would work as an industry to say, okay, a fraction of the rents the industry agrees together with the host country maybe will be given as direct payment to the population, for example. And typically people in countries like that um, know very well um, uh, how to use direct payment. Um, whereas if this was done, given out through various administrative bodies, there would be a lot of wastage and inefficiencies. Um, so that that's, uh, to me, a theme that I've struggled with a lot because I'm sure that in Iraq, if, I don't know, 10% of energy rent went directly to the people, it would have made a massive difference um, to uh, their ability to get education, healthcare, uh, and, and improve their livelihoods, etc. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I had a very good uh, colleague, uh, senior colleague, uh, when I was working in Senegal. So he ran a lot of the country coordination for me, who used to remind me that if, if, if you do something, so let's say we go to one village to meet with them and talk about our project and ask what the fishermen think about us working in their environment, you're not going to the other village. Mm. And as soon as you try to do something where you, 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 so in the example you gave where you're making payments to the population, okay, everybody, mm. because some will get and some won't, or some will get more and others. And so whilst you can't and probably shouldn't not do it, you have to be very, very clear that if you give or pay to one, you are actually also not paying to another and possibly another country as well. And so it's very, it's not a reason not to do it, but I think to be very, very aware that the signal or the power of what you're doing, and it could be as simple as giving people jobs or recruiting from one village or whatever it is. So no, you, you do good or you do better in one area, but you create discomfort and annoyance uh, and possibly, you know, certainly distrust and, and, and possibly a, 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 a problem in another. So I would go back to, I thought you were actually, I'm going to take a slight risk and do it. And I thought when you were talking about poor investment of oil and gas revenues, you were talking about the UK. <laughs> you, when I talked about Norway earlier and how they've looked at their offshore oil and gas in a strategic way, and I think I wouldn't be alone in thinking that the energy strategy of the UK over the last 40 years hasn't necessarily and produce the sort of resources for the country in a way that you would if you did it again. Yeah. And I think we have to be very careful then that if we sit in an office in Singapore or Russia or Scotland and think that we know how another country should allocate its resources, yeah. I think we do have to be very, very careful. Yeah. And I don't think we get it right in a domestic arena yeah. uh, as well. But if I take it back to, uh, I guess, to the Philippines and Senegal, uh, Norway, we talked about. So my role as a business person was to do the projects that the countries wanted, to do them safely, to do them efficiently, and that jobs would be created. Often we were doing gas, which would offset oil or coal. So it was a much cleaner emission system, and you weren't shipping or importing oil by tanker uh, across environmentally sensitive seas, etc., and so there was a huge positive up to that point. Yeah. And then the way that their society was organized, often through democratic governments in each of the cases I was in, they will work out how best to use yeah. Yeah. the revenues produced. So I've not had the exposure and, and the challenges you've had in a 
often a land and a, and a very remote environment where you really have a sense of what you describe. So I've often worked in at a federal level yeah. rather than a, a local level, uh, and often in an offshore project where it's it's much easier to ring fence and and be visible about yeah, yeah. what is happening. Uh, it sounds wrong. You, you're invisible because you're offshore, but visible because it's a very everyone can can appreciate what it is. Whereas a land project is much more spread out, uh, interacts with many many more stakeholders and villages, etc. Yeah, um, it is a dilemma. It's a dilemma, I guess, which is coming now in all sorts of industries, isn't it? So whether it's pharmaceuticals or internet, etc., yeah. is how do you know how do the revenues of the companies that are winning during COVID? Uh, get fed back into the community to do to do good. True, and and uh, I like your 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 use of the UK as a counterexample. Because I, I remember early in my career in my energy training that uh, we were talking about political risk, and um, in the box high risk uh, was the UK together with Nigeria and others because they were some. The UK was one of the countries with the the, the least amount of regulatory predictability. Um, due to the constant changes, that was one issue. And I remember coming across this issue even in the renewal space, where uh, in the in the onshore wind, for example, there was um, uh, by talking to the um, one of the industry associations, I realized there was a huge backlog of of projects, onshore wind projects that were ready to go, but um, the the regulatory mechanism had been frozen um, by the Conservative Party because so much of the um, the wind projects would have visually impacted land that was owned by by that particular party uh, mm-hmm. or members of that party so i thought that was interesting to see okay other dimensions of of um of um let's call it institutional um dysfunction um mm-hmm. or not in the interest of the people basically and we'll need that so we you and i discussed this in london at the gmap reunion but also in washington as well but it's so that sort of triangle where you need transparent or predictable government policy. You need society to be supportive or clear on its preferences. And you need organizations like yours and mine and and, and all of the international organizations need to play their role. So you need all of that to work. And in a world where there's so much turbulence um, and so much change, to then have a policy framework which is stable to allow the investments, which allows the innovation, the education, all the things that we know we need, and, and so if you turn feed-in tariffs on and off on, on, yeah. on renewable power, or if you, 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 you surprise people with a windfall tax uh, or whatever, all of that triggers a reduction in investor confidence. Yeah. And it makes it harder for everyone to plan, whether it's the healthcare system, the, the education system. The, all yeah. of the, these organizations need that mixture between the agility to handle the way the world changes, but the sort of predictability that they can do things which are going to... Uh, it's like when I grew up in a medical family, isn't it? how many doctors do you need in 20 years' time? Yeah. So who, who should go to medical school now when they won't come out for you know, 10, 20 years? Yeah. And how do we then, as a society, allocate our youth to the professions that we'll need in 20 years. Yeah, and, and, and there's, of course, a, a great link with the, the conversation about energy, of course, which is um, if you put a lot of emphasis on dismantling the old energy system and requiring uh, companies like, like, like Shell to, to, um, um, to focus on decarbonization and, and creating new business models, like who's going to do the conventional stuff while we still, still need it in terms of long-term investments and how are you going to reward that um, people who 
invest in creating capacity that you need um, in, in case um, in, in case peak demand occurs. Having the foresight on on on, um, on energy security as well. Um, so yeah, true. <laughs> I mentioned earlier that, that although I'm a professional and I'm working in an industry which is about secure energy, particularly to Europe at the moment, I mean, I play a, my team plays a very, very small part. We are involved in a joint venture operated by a Russian company that produces and delivers gas within Russia, and that's then fed through an infrastructure system to Europe. And the company that I'm working for has worked... Uh, with this this gas supply system uh, since the 60s we were the first country first company uh, to buy uh, gas from russia and we're very proud of that and remain so i also mentioned my time in troll i mentioned the philippines that we produce gas uh, to offset coal and i guess i'm challenged at the moment because i believed and still believe that if you're trading with somebody and exchanging, as we discussed, people are traveling, they're meeting each other, they have an interdependency because one's producing and one's buying. Or, uh, the, and we, we learned trade, didn't we, in um, lovely discussions about um, uh, the, 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 the theoretical advantages of trade in, in GMA. And I still strongly believe that that is right, that to trade across borders or across organizational boundaries is right. Mm-hmm. But it is being severely tested, my personal hypothesis, my personal values at the moment, uh, for the reasons that everyone knows who's listening. Yeah. I'd love to do this podcast again next year or possibly in two yeah. years' time. Because I think fundamentally, it is in everybody's interest that those that have the resources or the, um, you know, the economic advantage in a certain area should trade that with others. Be it, yeah. you know, historically, those who had the fish would, 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 would send the fish to those who had the grass and they would trade fish for grass. I mean, in my area in, in Scotland, in Fife, there was a lot of trade because Scotland had coal, uh, which Norway didn't and vice versa. Uh, there, was, there was trade uh, in the Hanseatic period between Norway, Germany, Scotland, uh, for those reasons. Yeah. And I still strongly believe that, although everything you read in the news day by day at the moment challenges that it's a, it's a very powerful statement you're making because in the face of all this like to use the words that you'd use in the prior prior conversation like business and talking help uh, peace stability and prosperity um to, to still believe that in in summer 2022 i think is a is a really beautiful optimistic but i think also probably partially painful belief to to continue to hold. I still believe that. It's very heavily tested currently, uh, my beliefs. Um, But if you go back to the theories that we learnt on GMAP about competitive advantage, where certain regions or countries have resources or skills that they can trade in exchange for resources or skills from another region or another country, that interdependence you can create between those countries, I do believe strongly, keeps things more peaceful. And if you go back in time, so where I am, my home in Scotland in Fife, a long time ago, unfortunately now, um, salt was what they had as a competitive advantage, and coal, and, and fish, and other things of that nature. And those aren't traded as much now, but in that 
generation, they were incredibly important to the local industry and the local society in our area. And you see that in other countries as well. So when you look at gas as a critical energy supply, both as a clean provider as part of the energy transition, your gas from countries like Russia to places like Europe is absolutely critical. And I believe that will be a good relationship in the long run, uh, which will maintain the peace between the two countries. I think even the adults, the professionals in international relations, don't know how to handle the current situation. Everyone's doing their best, as I talked yeah. earlier. With incomplete information, they're making the decisions they think are right. Um, but if you don't have energy, I mean, my, I didn't touch on this earlier, but as a child, um, for various reasons, my parents hosted families, and uh, doctors, medical families uh, from India, but also from Ghana. And as one story, I'm sure my father wouldn't mind me sharing, which I hope I get right, which was when electricity was being rationed in Ghana, the factories would work at night, which meant often because of the nature of the work, it was women who were working in those factories, mothers, which meant that the children were not as supervised at home. And then with the lack of reliable power or the way that power worked in their society, it was often a, a log or a charcoal fire. Yeah. Which meant that, and with soup, which was, was one of the predominant food sources or, or part of the cuisine there, hot liquids, young children unsupervised, the instance of burns, wow. so scalding of young children, went up because of unreliable energy supply. Yeah. Now, that's a, a long stretch where you go from you know, gas doesn't come down pipes to a country which leads to more, more children being hurt. But these, if you like, unintended consequences yeah. of not having reliable energy, or in the Filipino sense where you had people who had wonderful fruit production in remote islands who didn't have refrigeration to look after the fruit and keep it ready for market, which meant they had these amazing resources. And with a small um, solar plant or with a small wind turbine, they could run a refrigerator and yeah. they could get their fruit to market, which meant they yeah. could. And so that's why I'm absolutely convinced that reliable clean energy is so critical that despite the political upheaval that we have at the moment, the fundamentals will still be there. Yeah. And I do strongly believe that gas is part of that, and a critically important part of that because of the amount of it and the, the, the magnitude of the transition. Um, but I also still believe, as we talked earlier, that the partnership and innovation capability that we have as a society will solve um, the emissions element yeah. and find these technologies that we can deploy at scale. Yeah. Um, so I strongly believe it, but it is a very, very difficult time at the moment. Yeah. I, and I, th I think it's, it's an interesting point there because both of us, we are pretty, even though most of our career has been in, in kind of, I would, I would call it, we've had quite privileged lives, I would say. I, I, I want to stay humble, but still say that, that I think we have seen what energy insecurity means for families and, 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 and people with, of, of limited um, means. And I think it's definitely something that's top of mind when we talk about disruptions in energy security. And to me, it's definitely something I'm thinking about when we talk about energy exports into Europe and uh, disruption to that flow, what it means for countries, especially in, in Eastern Southern Europe that rely at, on a much higher degree um, on, on, on Russian energy uh, and, and what 
what an end to that would actually mean in the absence of um, concrete solutions. What does it mean for livelihoods, for energy costs, for um, children being able to uh, continue their education and all of that? And so it's tempering a lot, maybe uh, beliefs that we may have around how the actual state system should be should be organized and how uh, and, and the moral dimension of that but if you go if you think about state systems i think one of the huge challenges is if you like again without being a political or a, a sort of a, a particular country comment you know the trust in our media the trust in our security forces the trust in our parliamentarians the trust in the legal system uh, whatever and I think with the polarization of people, particularly with COVID, when we're stuck at home on the internet, you, do we do we trust our health professionals about whether vaccines are good or bad or which vaccines are right? Do we trust them to, as you say, allocate the resources of the country to those who need it most? So are we going to get through the cost of living crisis while still looking after those who have um, who have the least? And do we trust that our institutions and organizations, particularly public ones, can do that. Now, in COVID, you can look at it both ways. You can say that a lot of things went very, very well, and we innovated our way out of it. You can also look at it and say, well, actually, some decisions were made that meant many of us lost loved ones um, and livelihoods and and all the rest of it. And so I think what you, you touch on is that, unfortunately, I think the combination of the internet, the combination of the isolation of the last few years, and that intensity of the change that we're now seeing, economically but also politically, I think it's a really important time for the leaders of these institutions to step up um, and, and get it right, mm, yeah. ethically, yeah. politically, economically, um, which is easy for me to say when I'm you know, in, 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 a, in, in a such a sort of simple position of you know, being a a general manager of a, of a, of a hydrocarbon yeah. company, but it, it, you know, I think that trust in in our institutions is is at a critical point. Yeah. I, I wonder whether this is a right, right point to talk about you personally as well in terms of how you um, live your beliefs. I, I know that that for you the a belief in in connecting people across divides and barriers, and I, I know that you've got a really rich eclectic set of personal interests uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how that supports you um, especially in the such such challenging times um, you've linked two things there which I may see going to split so you like my beliefs or my desire to connect people or organizations is different perhaps from my my hobbies in some ways but if I look back at the things I do as hobbies whether it's trombone because Dundee when I grew up had a very good musical support from the local council and there was lots of initiatives on music if you look at telemark skiing which is a slightly unusual way of skiing which the Norwegians love and I absolutely love uh, or things of this nature or rugby which was something I did as a youth which my father enjoyed all of these are relaxing and they get you outdoors and you're doing often these things in teams of people which you get to know very very well and they don't care what you do for a living uh, or what your family circumstances or your background is. It's just people doing things for fun and for leisure. But what I've realized over time is that a lot of these sports and hobbies are voluntary. And the people who end up organizing them, 
for example, I qualified as a telemark ski instructor and also as a very, very amateur rugby referee. But before they let you near a class or near a pitch, they have to know you're competent. And that's exactly the same process we go through in private industry is how do we know that a, an economist or a, an accountant or an engineer is ready to do what they do professionally? And so I'm very impressed. And often you can transfer the organizational skills that you need in a hobby or in a pastime into a business environment. And actually, in, in, in the, the hobbies that I do, as I say, those, those volunteers aren't paid. And so the way you then motivate people and create a focused team, you can't use the sort of typical boss stuff. You can't pay a salary or a bonus or, you know, a business trip or whatever training course. No. So a lot of it about that sort of personnel management skill set. I would really believe that anyone who's in a hobby or a sport or an extracurricular activity can really learn a huge amount about how to deploy those skills in in a working uh, organization. The connecting, that comes from partly, as I said, my parents with these various families coming through the house, but it's also that interface role I talked about in, in my first early career. So, so I was an engineer of, in technical speak, I was a production technologist looking at the completions. In non-technical speak, the small pipe that connects the surface all the way down several hundred, if not thousands of meters or feet, that was my specialty. So I was in a role where I was interfacing between those who understood the rocks, those who understood the fluids, and those who understood the equipment on the surface. And that naturally is an interface role, and the troll was the same, and the joint ventures are all about, as we discussed earlier, the cross-understanding between the company or the department. And I just enjoy applying that in life. So if there's a, a student who's trying to get an internship, Let's, let's help them. Or if there's a company that wants to get into Senegal, let's help them. Or if there's a, um, you know, there's a, as a Russian, let's think of another example, there's a, indeed, a, a, a Russian businessman that, that, that uh, wants to better understand Scottish um, investment opportunities. If I can be a broker between them at a very simple personal sense, it's, hey, Philip, you should talk to this person. Um, I take great pride in that, and I have a very diverse network. It's not a financial thing at all. It's just, that's good. You're helping, and it's reciprocal. Um, so that is, but it also works, indeed, when you do a country entry or you do something new of any sort, there's usually someone who's done it before, yeah. and they usually like to talk about it if you ask, and say, hey, Philip, you've done this before. I have not done this. Could I ask you a few questions, or could you... Talk to my next door neighbor who's, who's about to do this. And it's in a non-monetary way. I think that's a wonderful way to enable cross-learning and to help the next generation. It, it, it's a zero cost to any of us to do that, to allow an introduction or to, 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 to have a conversation. Um, because that's different to the hobbies. So the hobbies are eclectic. You're right. I have been very fortunate to do historical ballroom dancing here in St. Petersburg. Wow. I've done telemark skiing in, um, in Norway. Um, in the Netherlands, I was in a, a big band. These are just things you can do in different cultures to meet people, to relax. The music you referred to earlier, the power of, uh, of music, uh, I think is wonderful because music crosses international boundaries in a way that language doesn't. And um, 
you know, not everyone likes the same music, but you know, music is a, a language, if you like, in its own way, which is, 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 is not linked to the geography of the country. And it's a wonderful way to meet people or to relate to people. Mm-hmm. Tom, I've I've really been enjoying our, our conversation, and um, um, it's it's been amazing to to go through um, your 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 personal hi- history and career background as you've gone through um, periods of history that definitely sound like they they, they rhyme a lot. And um, I'd, I'd be keen to ask you as you kind of look back on on uh, on, on these different chapters, what are what are some of the lessons learned that you keep, or some of the things that really matter to you the most. I think one of the key ones is that I certainly am only doing what I'm doing now because of all the help I've had along the way. Now, whether that's a good boss or even a bad boss, or it's a colleague or a loved one, or you know, someone in another country who's taken the effort to make you feel welcome. So I think that would be one, is that through life there's going to be ups and downs, of course, but that everyone's pretty much going to give you the opportunity to learn something and develop. And, and I've had those amazing opportunities to do that, and people have helped hugely. Health, I'll touch on in two ways, um, and particularly after COVID, when people really started to talk about um, health in, in, in a mental as well as a physical way. Um, so there's two things in my life, health-related, which were important to me, and I got through, if that's the right word, with help from friends. And one was that in the run-up to my wedding with this lovely Norwegian lady, uh, my best man decided that he didn't want to live anymore. Oh, wow. Um, but the reason I mention it, if you go back to youth and engineering, no one told me that young men in their 20s have got a higher statistical risk of self-harm yeah. or suicide, yeah. to call it what it is, than others. Um, and they should. We should talk about things like this and allow people to help each other more. But although that individual, that friend, is no longer physically with us, I'm not a religious person at all. Um, I'm convinced that people have an impact later, Mm. like our grandparents. We've talked about our parents, our grandparents. I think people have an impact on the world and on the people who are still here even though they're no longer physically here, in whatever sense. And so that shock to me and to all of uh, the friends at the time, I'm sure has influenced our lives positively, despite the fact it was such a negative thing at the time. And I guess I mentioned that for those who are listening, that people will have horrible, everyone does, don't they? A horrible event or shock. And realizing that a positive, it won't come soon, but there will be a reason, there'll be a positive that you can take out of that. And it's a theme that you mentioned a few times, this belief that somehow events will make sense at some point. Yes. And and so these life experiences that you have prepare you for. And so again, the, 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 the very sad loss of my, of my young friend, again, enables me, I think, to, relate in a small better way when a colleague or a friend also says oh look i'm not feeling great yeah yeah um and yes we might label ourselves again we talked about labeling earlier you're a you're an engineer you know you don't have empathy or whatever that's nonsense we're all humans we're all and people relate in different ways so that would be one that i think is really important to mention is that 
just because someone's looking happy and bubbly and positive and all the rest of it, look after your friends. Yeah. And then the other one, I unfortunately slipped a disc in my neck uh, and needed a, a relatively serious operation. Mm. And that's when I think you realize the strength of family, particularly, yeah. but also companies. So I was with Shell at that time, and they handled it superbly. My boss handled it superbly. My family was supportive. And you know it's serious because I didn't really, perhaps at the time, it's very painful, of course, but when you wake up after the operation, the surgeon comes in and, and, and sort of chats, says, Tom, can, can you feel your feet? Yeah, sure. Okay. And then he walked out. And you kind of <laughs> appreciated that the operation he had done might have a side effect. But uh, um, anyway, so that those things in life. And so that was a time when family was superbly important and critical to get you through something which is physically, but also mentally challenging mm, yeah. um, uh, so again so those those things what they do I think for me and, and I think in life in general is that makes you grab things so you talked about my ski trip to Sochi or my whatever during COVID which I love you know, let's go and do the things yeah. now while we can yeah. let's not plan in five years in ten years I'm going to go and do this yeah. no if, 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 if you know, if your friends won't be with you in five years or if you won't have the health to do it or if the flights don't fly because of COVID or current circumstances, you know, so grab these opportunities, go and do them. And I think that's helped me make that transition from Shell to the smaller company in Scotland. Yeah. It's helped me move from engineering into more country management roles. It's perhaps given me the confidence to come back to Russia on a second trip. So this, for me, the strength or the, 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 the focus comes from realizing that time is short and health is valuable and that your friends and family are absolutely key. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Th thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Tom. And I think there's one other thought that uh, I wanted to highlight among what you've just said is be, a, be also aware of the unhelpful thoughts that are stuck in your mind. Uh, for example, I'm an engineer, I'm not empathetic, or... I, I'm a busy professional. I cannot enjoy my life, and and, and those that we ex take for granted, which are like post-its stuck that 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 you cannot mm. uh, remove, and it's it's very helpful to at least be aware of them, so that you realize actually these are just thoughts. I can unstick that 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 post-it if I if I if yes. I'm aware of it. Yeah, and it's normal. So as you're in a team in whatever organization, or you're in a a street and you know your neighbors, you know statistically. Again, as I shouldn't use statistic, that's a sort of engineering term, but you know, if you put a hundred people in your office, you know, by the end of the year, so many will have had, you know, they'll have done the normal things, had a baby, moved house, whatever, but they might have lost a loved one, yeah. they might have been unwell, had a heart attack, whatever. Just as soon as I mean, all of us have got, you know, connectivity with maybe the close friends of a handful, but you know, hundreds of people in our organizations and our societies, you're gonna come across people who are having a tough yeah. time. Yeah. Uh, just because that's the way life is. Yeah, that's true. Um, so, Tom, I'd like to end our episode with a few quick questions. So, first, um, please share one read that has changed you. I mentioned earlier that I'm very privileged and very happy to be married to a lovely Norwegian woman. And so everything to do with the Vikings stands out for me perhaps more strongly than others. And so the Viking laws, and I, when you ask the question, I tried to check the providence, but it's a sort of 
postcard or sort of poster you see. And very quickly, so these are be brave and aggressive, be prepared, be a good merchant, and keep the camp in order. So those are sort of the, 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 the Viking elements. Um, but the ones I particularly like, so under each of those is a subset. And I pinned these on my wall during the COVID mess two years ago when I was running the emergency management team. And also recently, unfortunately, in March, the same thing because of the current situation. These are very helpful for a private person, but they're also very helpful at work. So be versatile and agile is, is, is one of them. Uh, keep in shape. Um, don't promise things that you can't keep. And the one that we talked about in terms of, of trade, which I like, is arrange things so that you can return. And so these, for me, are very useful sort of aid memoirs that I have pinned on the wall that help me privately, but also help me professionally. Oh, wow. Thanks. <laughs> and then one hack or a habit that has improved your life? This is relatively simple, and it's something I did late, and I copied it from very nice man called Peter Callas, who I'm sure won't mind me mentioning it. But I met him briefly 18 years ago. And he, and I guess his assistant, would work and send a little Christmas greeting. Dear Tom, and then a happy Christmas. And it made me feel a connection with him in a way that I didn't with many others. So I copied that. And so I now, with a little help from my assistant, but mostly me learning some digital tricks, send an email greeting either for Christmas or other milestones of the year. And it's lovely because in a busy world where our networks are all over or we're locked down, it reconnects you with people that you perhaps haven't spoken to in the course of the year. So sending an annual greeting, dear Philip, dear Tom, with some sort of light or positive message has really opened up my connectivity to friends and colleagues that I haven't talked to. And last one is one question that I should ask the next guest. I think if you link it back to GMAT, possibly, and you would say, well, looking back on your life now, was GMAT the experience that you wanted it to be? Or was there anything about GMAT that has led you in a different direction? Yeah, that's a good one. I like it. <laughs> so th thank you very much, Tom, for our wonderful conversation today. I've, I've really enjoyed um, having you at the call face no, Philip likewise it's been an absolute privilege well done with these podcasts keep going thank you very very much thanks for listening please follow us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from to be the first to know when new episodes come out <laughs>